Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> the Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. This is Steve Matico, and you're listening no, to the Wicked no, no, Library. No, no, no. This is Steve Matico, and you're listening no, to the Wicked Library. Steve Matico, this is the Wicked Library. I'm Steve Matico. This is the Wicked Library. Shut the fuck up. This is Steve Matico, and this is the Wicked Library. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, royals and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Welcome back to the Wicked Library. Today, we bring you a double dose of dread from across the pond. Mark Nixon gives us two reasons to fear the things that hide in the dark and cast shadows at the door. Stay tuned after the stories, kiddies. Mark is hanging on to reveal some secrets to you. <laughs> Light, it said, reveals the truth. Further, it is claimed it banishes the darkness and the evil that dwells there. What follows us unseen in the dark? Things that we draw to ourselves through our own foolishness and greed? And, if that is the case, is it perhaps better that we leave those things safely in the dark? Or... Is it better that we confront them? Even if, in the confrontation, we lose our sanity or even our lives. Once there was a photographer. Once there was a photographer. 
Capturing images had been his passion ever since an uncle had gifted him a small, cheap camera one Christmas morning many years ago. Rather than losing interest, as his parents had predicted, he spent his free days honing his skills and began to garner the admiration of those that cared to look. After leaving university, despite his distinguished initials, he found work hard to come by. After a few months, he conceded and fell into the lucrative, if unfulfilling, world of wedding photography. The venture paid well and even gained him a favorable reputation among his peers. Yet half a decade later, he felt his artistic appetite begin to stir and he decided to take a vocational sabbatical. Following a flurry of summer weddings, his bank balance dictated at least a three-month break in fiscal comfort. With a view to creating a new portfolio, he made his way to Northumberland, a place he had spent many a picturesque holiday as a child. Arriving in a small, relatively obscure village, he settled at a bed and breakfast and quickly unpacked. The afternoon light was ebbing away, and he set out to make the most of the remaining day on the moors that enveloped the village. Racing against the vanishing light, the photographer dashed across the flat, lifeless moors. He soon came upon a gathering of hills standing defiantly in the way of what he knew would be the perfect shot. He scrambled up the hills for a better view and was rewarded with the sight of the setting sun over the peaks of Northumberland. And what a sight it was. Instinctively, he raised his camera to capture the majesty of the moment. The cloying mud tugged at his boots as he shifted his footing oblivious to anything beyond the lens of his camera. He felt as far from the bustle of city life as a man at sea. A great peace settled in him at that moment. Eventually, the sun retreated to the other side of the world, leaving only an orange glow peeking over the horizon. With some distance separating him from a sound sleep back at the bed and breakfast, he made his way back with haste. It took longer than he had anticipated to travel back over the moors, and as he reached the edge of the village twilight had long since passed. He was now in the midst of darkness. The streetlights were a welcome presence, and though there were few buildings in this outpost of the main village, he felt glad to be back among civilization. He estimated it was another 20 minutes back to his lodgings, so when a lone, elegant street lamp caught his eye, looming outside an abandoned house some distance away, he couldn't resist pursuing one final photo opportunity. Even with a camera as sophisticated as his, the photographer found his shot somewhat wanting. Dawdling back to the village, and after viewing the picture on the small camera screen, he decided something decent could be salvaged with the help of his photo editing software back home. He idly passed another house that seemed to be empty, and found himself on the brink of what looked to be a shortcut, in the form of an alley between the house and an old church. He remembered seeing a similar wall circling an entrance not far from the bed and breakfast and assumed it to be the same one. A chill was setting in and his lengthy coat failed to sufficiently shield him. So with his mind made up, he took the first few tentative steps upon the path. It was merely another five steps before he was enveloped by darkness, the shadows of the buildings masking the presence of trees on the left. He looked back and saw the dull glow of streetlights. It would be easy to find a better, illuminated, if not longer, journey. The cold, however, was starting to bother him, and the thought of the roaring fire a mere 20 minutes away spurred him on. He dismissed his childish longing for light and continued on. He waited for his eyes to adapt to the dark, 
But strangely, the adjustment never came. As such, his pace slowed, and when turning back clearly became the sensible thing to do, he had already covered too much ground for it to make a difference. His walk became uncomfortable, and he found himself blindly reaching forwards to find any obstacle in the darkness. Yet there seemed to be nothing of the sort. The path was long and perfectly straight, leaving him no option but to continue blindly. He heard the distant roar of a vehicle speeding along and felt relief at the hint of life. But as it passed, so too did his reassurance, and with a single swallow, the unease came rushing back. The bushes around him rustled, but there was no breeze. The photographer felt his anxiety intensify. Against reason, he opened his mouth to call out, but something else, something deep within, told him to be quiet. He stood silently, as if to be invisible in the dark. If fight or flight were instincts deep within our DNA, surely he had chosen the third option, hide. But as time passed and his paralysis began to feel foolhardy, he motivated himself to continue. As he picked up the pace, he became aware of the soft pat of his keys in his pocket and held his hand firmly against them, silencing the noise. The bushes shook again. This time, he was sure he was not alone. But surely, it was only some kind of harmless wildlife. In fact, he could have sworn he'd seen some rabbits while making his way back across the moors. Yes, he decided. It was some innocent beast and nothing more. Yet another rustle ahead of him bypassed his logic and triggered a deep and primal response. I'm not alone, he thought. As soon as the thought was raised, he dismissed it. He was a logical man after all. Still, he had to know for sure. Light, he thought. He needed light. He grabbed his camera, which had been dangling from his neck, and firmly pressed his finger on the button to take a picture. Light instantly filled the path in a blinding flash, offering only the briefest moment of illumination. He blinked rapidly as his own vision was robbed by the new light. His eyes began to recover. He squinted, bracing his eyes against the flash as he took another picture. Just as the flash died away, it glinted off two singular objects down the path, something at his own height. Two eyes in the darkness beyond. A veil of hazy green spots hung over his flash-addled retinas. Perhaps it was a trick of the mind. He took another picture, and this time he saw no eyes looking back. Satisfied, he allowed his camera to hang again from his neck and carried on. He cursed his decision to take the supposed shortcut. Surely he had been walking for far longer than 20 minutes. He wished he could run. But that was not an option in the darkness that had swallowed him. He went on, resisting the help from the flash to guide his way. He might have been sure there were no eyes, but nonetheless, there was no need to announce his presence. He sought to pass the wretched pathway unnoticed by nature and unnoticed by any prowler. His arms were still raised, despite having failed to detect anything the entire journey. Suddenly, his hand made contact with something 
He felt the sensation of something hairy under his fingertips. Hair which was thick and firm, like that of a shaving brush. The kind of brush he remembered was made from badger hair. But what he felt was far too tall to be common wildlife. Indeed, it was something not natural to this world. He instantly withdrew his hand in both fear and disgust. While the owner of the hair stood rigid, he himself fell backwards in shock, landing harshly on the ground. Unconsciously, he grabbed the camera and aimed it in front of him. His finger found the shutter, but his courage failed him, and he screwed shut his eyes. Through closed lids, he saw the flash of the camera and heard whatever it was lumber off in the explosion of light. He called out in fear, but was not answered in the way he expected. Light flooded the path from two huge spotlights somewhere over the stone wall. He shielded his eyes and quickly looked down the path, only to find it empty. Nothing unusual, save for a great set within the stone wall on the right. Satisfied the prowler was gone, he stood and dashed into the spotlights. A gruff voice, that of an older man with a thick accent, called out from the light. Who the fuck goes there? He could not answer. It was all he could do to keep himself upright. However, the owner of the voice could clearly see the intruder at his gate. Who is it? The voice snapped. The photographer cleared his throat and shouted back. I'm, I'm sorry, he stammered. I'm, I'm lost, but thank God you... Jesus fucking Christ, interrupted the voice as it seemed to draw it nearer. The photographer watched a silhouette enter the light, unable to make out any features in the blinding glare. What he could make out, however was that a figure seemed to be pointing something at him. Something long. What the fuck are you doing out at this time of night? The shape demanded, jogging over to him and at last becoming fully visible. He was clearly a farmer, his attire and flat cap a dead giveaway. The photographer was startled as he realized the farmer brandished a double-barreled shotgun, only pointing it away as he hastily swung open the gate and ushered him in. Come in, quickly, lad. The photographer responded to the order and quickly allowed himself to be grabbed by the sleeve. The farmer pointed his gun beyond the gate and barked back at the stranger. Up to the house, lad, now! There he was greeted at the open door by an older woman. Her face was pale and the glow from the spotlights only served to illuminate her ghostly expression. Come in, Petal, she said. Quickly now. The two men entered the house and the farmer quickly flicked the key in the door and secured not one, not two, but three bolts across the door. The hallway lights were off, and the house was illuminated only by a lamp in the kitchen opposite the front door. The farmer thumped at the switch by the door, and the floodlights went dead. Thank you, sighed the guest, bemused at the situation. The farmer pulled up a chair and sat diligently by the door, shotgun in hand. So, are you a simple lad? He snapped. The farmer's wife laid her hands on the photographer's shoulders and replied on his behalf. Leave him alone, John, she looked at the stranger. He's clearly not from around here. Aye, came his grunted reply. The hallway fell awkwardly silent. The hosts were in no rush to explain the situation. I'll make some tea, 
the woman said, retreating into the kitchen. The photographer, unsure of what social niceties are appropriate at such a moment, simply met the eyes of the farmer and nodded. You'd do best to sit down, lad, he said. I imagine you'll need to rest. Thanks, he replied, allowing himself to sit on the stairs. He wasn't sure how, but the couple seemed to know what he had encountered outside. Had they seen it from their window? With nothing to do while the kettle boiled in the other room, the photographer took his camera from around his neck and switched it on. He pressed the preview button, and the most recent picture appeared on the screen. What he saw caused his stomach to drop and his eyes to widen. On the small screen was something so distinctly horrible, he felt inclined to smash his camera there on the spot. He saw a snout facing down at the lens, but not the sort belonging to a dog or even a wolf. The photographer has never spoken aloud of the picture since, but on his darkest days, he has dared to privately describe it as otherworldly. Above all else, what stood out about it was not the jagged teeth protruding, but the upturned nature of the lips as they formed some kind of snarling smile. And above the snout were unmistakably the eyes from before, yellow and without iris. Yet somehow, they seemed to display a sentience about them, a knowing, and furthermore, a craving for blood. The photographer wished he had never seen that picture. Deleting the image and later destroying the camera had failed to erase the memory. Even now, one year later, as he stands snapping pictures of a newly married couple embracing under the rotating spotlights of a dance floor, he swears he can see two yellow eyes watching him from the darkness. His work has never been the standard it had been before. His hands just won't stop shaking. This is Victoria Bigglesworth Pose. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I'd be very mad otherwise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or am I? The Best Intentions A solitary crow scavenges for food, pecking absently at the cobbles of a darkening York street. A biting gust darts through the trees, and the bird launches into a skittish flight. Satisfied the breeze poses no threat, it settles atop the slated roof of a lean house and caws into the empty night. No one hears. A bitter chill is creeping in, and the sun retreats from the town over the hills. Inside, bundled away from the cold, a stout graying man stands by the fireplace. He inspects the cluttered mantelpiece as though he were browsing a shop. Smartly dressed, he boasts a proud posture, full of importance. Whether or not his pompous bearing is deserved is another matter, one that has never troubled him. An older woman eyes him anxiously from the sofa, politely waiting for his attention to return to her. Sorry, my dear, you were saying, he utters at last. I was just a bit lost. I never realized Robert was such a hoarder. 
He turns to his host, delivering an uneasy chuckle, somewhat lacking in conviction. You think so? She replies, a little unsure of the statement. Although she has known her guest for many years, never before has she been forced to share a conversation with him alone. It feels unnatural to her, each sentence bringing a little more unease to the pit of her stomach. When is it polite, she wonders, to ask a guest to leave? Oh, most definitely. He picks up a cigarette case from the mantel and examines it absently. He did love his little knickknacks, didn't he? I dare say he had trouble letting them go, yes? She forces a polite smile. I don't know if I'd call them knickknacks. Keepsakes, really? Her guest gives a civil grunt of approval, and a broad smile erupts on his face as he finally pops open the case. Two cigarettes remain inside, waiting to dutifully provide their possessor with a few moments of relaxation. He turns the case over in his thick-fingered hand and tips them into the bin. His host furrows her brow in disapproval. Horrible things, he says coldly. Something else he should have let go of, really. As the acceptable period of pleasantries dies away, the widow returns to the business at hand and reaches into her pocket. She delicately produces a silver pocket watch. Though it bears the odd scratch on the cover, the recently polished case was clearly the recipient of much care and attention over the years. Though plain and unspectacular at first glance, it nonetheless commands the full attention of the paunchy house guest. Clasping his overeager hands together as he sets himself down, his eyes fix solely on the watch, as though he expected it to scupper away. Robert always knew you had your eyes on this. She rubs her thumb affectionately over the cover, lost in a memory. I think he wants you to have it. I don't think I could accept such a thing, he says, only because he felt it was expected. In reality, he has no intention of leaving without it. She leans toward him and places it in his hand. Don't be silly. It was no secret that you envied him, she remarks only half in jest. Some minutes later, he pulls on his coat, having accomplished what he had come to do. The watch sits safely in his jacket pocket. Its weight feels natural to him already. The two exchange amiable farewells, and he takes his leave. Since news of his friend's sudden death reached him, he is worried that the watch may have been given away to charity or lost to some other foolish endeavor. He has spent his day locating the cheapest possible train to York under the guise of comforting his dear friend's widow. Although his companion had not been a rich man, he apparently had enough money to ensure a comfortable life for the widow he left behind. He heads down the pathway as the door thuds closed behind him. No sooner has he turned the corner, leaving the sight of the house, he stops to admire his new possession. He presses the top, and the hoary cover flips open to reveal the face. Twenty past six. His keenness to leave has gotten the better of him. The train home does not depart for over two hours. With time to kill, he makes his way to the local pub, a place he has often frequented with his departed friend in years past. Despite the heady nostalgia, he takes little pleasure in coming back. It has been some time, and he knows the only conversation will be one of death. Nevertheless, he sits at the bar, making indifferent small talk as his ale is poured. The 
bartender speaks to him with good-natured familiarity. He still knows his poison without having to ask. I take it you've been down to see his missus, then? The barman asks as he slides the glass across the bar to his customer. That I have, he replies matter-of-factly before taking a sip. Aye. The barman inattentively twists a ratty dishcloth around the rim of a glass. None of us felt quite right to do it yet. I mean, the wives have, but you'd expect that, wouldn't you? The punter looks up from his glass and glares at the bartender. The bartender flinches, realizing his faux pas. But you've done right by her, he stammers. Visiting, that is. Since you're all of... He searches for the right word, if there is one at all. Past. You've had every right not to get involved in someone else's mourning. But there you are, doing the right thing. Taking a large gulp of ale, the man lets the silence hang for a moment before delivering an almost rehearsed line. Robert was good to me when Olive died. Only right I see to his wife now. He picks up his glass and gets up from his rickety stool, nodding his head as he skulks away. Nice talking to you. He picks up a paper from the rack by the bar and finds a spot at the back of the room. The pub is dotted with drinkers, but thankfully not so busy that an empty table is hard to find. With his back to the door, he unfolds his paper and takes another drink. The headlines are of little consequence. He glances at the first few sentences over and over, taking in nothing. All he concerns himself with is the pleasant weight of the watch in his pocket. He can resist the temptation no more. He plunges his hand in and gazes upon it once again. The ticking is beautiful, therapeutic even. It is almost a crime the watch hadn't been his in the first place. As he scrutinizes it further, a slow scratching sound slithers into earshot, swelling and growing from somewhere beyond him. It is as if a heavy weight has been dragged over the carpet, tearing at it, dredging up its weft. He decides it must be one of the staff dragging barrels on the other side of the pub's uneven stone walls. After a minute of sluggish greeting, the sound is sharply interrupted. The bell above the front door chimes as another guest hurries in from the cold, though his stare is still fixed admiringly on his watch. He can't help but recognize the voice of another old friend, in the loosest sense of the word. He rolls his eyes as he hears the scuff of approaching footsteps. Hello, stranger. His former cohort sets himself graciously down at the table, the chair creaking under his hefty frame. He wipes his vein-riddled nose and sniffs, smiling broadly as he thumps his old drinking buddy on the back. Haven't seen you around in ages. Evening, Graham, he remarks without looking up from his paper. Suddenly aware that he is still clutching the watch, he stealthily tries to place it in his pocket, out of sight. Graham chuckles darkly in knowing disbelief. So that's what brings you back. Didn't even wait until his body was cold, did you? No idea what you're talking about, he retorts, avoiding his eyes. This was a gift. I'm sure it was, mate. The smile remains, but where before there was genuine affability, now it bore only a hint of malice. I'm sure you were just down to see how she was. Agitated, he leans forward lowering his voice to a growl. Look, 
I'm just visiting to honor an old friend. If I've received a gift for my troubles, then that's none of your bloody business. He leans back, swiftly finishing his drink, narrowing his eyes at his intrusive friend. Troubles? Graham mutters in disbelief. He shakes his paper straight angrily. You know what I mean. I'm sure I don't. But it's a funny thing about that watch. His companion's gaze stays stubbornly fixed on the paper. Rob loved that thing. Bloody loved it, didn't he? It's a nice watch. I, I think we all fancied the way he showed it off that night. But after you went back up north, Rob didn't seem so keen anymore. He glances up, increasingly aggravated by the interruption. Why? Can't say myself. But he was keen to throw it on the pile that night, wasn't he? He had plenty of cash left. Still gambled on old pocket watch. What are you saying? The novelty seemed to wear off quick, you know? But you enjoy it. He stands and pats his old friend once more on the shoulder. It's yours now. Outside, the night is crisp. He takes a long breath, throwing his scarf over his shoulder to shield his bare neck from the commute's cold air. Cold as it was, he'd rather wait in the station than put up with that old rabble any longer. He strolls out of town until he reaches the moat-like river that encircles the city. His steps slow to a crawl as he crosses the bridge, and he takes a moment to appreciate the familiar view. Long dead trees drape themselves over the banks, their spidery branches stretching over the water as if yearning to reach the other side. What little moonlight breaks through the cloud reflects on the still surface of the water, leaking long, silvery fingers of light along the river. This place may harbor a good deal of unpleasant memories for him, but he'd never grow tired of that view. A faint scratching turns his head, shattering his tranquil moment. There's no mistaking it. It's the same shrill clawing he had heard in the pub. Again and again. Each scrape grows louder, till it is impossible to ignore. The sound is deafening in his unsettled mind. He tries to shake his unease, snapping his head to the left to the right until the realization strikes him. The sound is coming from beneath the bridge. He places his hands warily on the edge, wondering if he dared look over and what might be waiting underneath. The grazing grows louder still. He wills himself the courage to peer over. Just as the underside of the bridge comes into his view, the noise stops. Releasing the rail, his knuckles white from the tension of his grip, he turns to look behind him. But he is quite alone. He scoffs at himself, in the ridiculousness of it all, and yet, he leans over one last time. He scans the darkness below the arch of the bridge, with nothing but shadow to meet his eye. Straightening up his coat, he catches sight of the train station ahead and resumes his journey his pace a little quicker than before. Shifting on a wooden bench on the platform, he buries his chin into his scarf. Scant commuters are strewn through the station, but even so, he finds their presence reassuring. The dull murmur of scattered conversation echoes across the bare concrete, and he is glad of the background noise. Idle hands turn the watch over in his pocket again 
and again, only stopping for the sound of an approaching train. Bound south, nonetheless, it holds his attention as glorious puffs of steam bellow from its engine. He rises and walks toward the edge for a better view. A smile forms on his lips as memories of childhood holidays spring to mind. Just as quickly as it juttered into view, the train passes. His eyes follow the creaking industrial behemoth out of the station, and a weight settles in his stomach as the whistles of the train give way to an unwelcome, recognizable scrape. He turns to a young woman, stood beside him with a neat little suitcase. Excuse me, dear. Do you hear that? She smiles politely, cocking her head to his inquiry. He hesitates. Doesn't matter. He shakes his head at his own foolishness as he turns back toward his bench. At last, the train arrives. It screeches to a stop on the tracks, and amidst the squeaking of doors and the scraping of luggage, he could swear he still makes out that awful scratching. He taps his finger on the carriage door with quiet desperation, a creeping anxiety building in his stomach. The moment the door's light glowed green, he jabs it, launching himself into the safety of the carriage. At last, he feels relief. He wipes his brow and composes himself before setting down the walkway to find a seat. He passes a young couple deep in conversation and another lone passenger engrossed in a newspaper. He slumps into the closest seat, back to the wall, and deliberately close to the exit. He tries to catch his breath. Rattling through countryside at a steady pace, the carriage rocks gently as it lumbers over the tracks, soothing its somewhat anxious passenger. His heavy breath leaves a dense layer on the window, the darkness outside glistening through the dribbling condensation. The train pulls into an empty station, and his skulking panic returns as he watches all the other passengers step out onto the platform. On his feet now, he scans the carriage. He is most definitely alone. He contemplates moving to a busier carriage, but the sudden jolt of the train knocks him back into his seat, leaving him little option. Most grown men would kill for a train carriage to themselves, he thinks. Enjoy it while you can. Sometime later, a young train conductor passes through, offering a quick smile. Many people aboard tonight? The solitary passenger calls after him. The conductor half turns and smiles again. Not really. You've got practically the whole train to yourself. Oh, he mutters, less than enthused. He wishes he'd never asked. Although the train's speed has placed a great stretch of distance between himself and York, he feels a restlessness, a sensation of being watched. The ominous scratching has died away, but he suspects it can't be far behind. No longer able to rationalize or brush away his fear, he simply wishes the journey over. As his mind drifts, the sharp score screams out, right by his head. He jolts upright in his chair, darting away from the sound. Again, longer this time, it sends a chill convulsing through his body. Again it shrieks without pause and louder than ever before. He mutters useless reassurances to himself, but even the sound of his own raised voice cannot dampen the horrible shredding engulfing the carriage. Pressing his hands over his ears, he doubles forward as if to shield himself from some terrible impending impact. He feels his watch slip from his pocket, clattering onto the floor. Desperately, he grabs at it, and despite his terror, 
he is compelled to check it for damage. He presses the top, and as the cover flicks open, the carriage is plunged into absolute darkness. Crying out, he clenches his fist over the watch. The scratching has stopped. The train's power ebbs away as its momentum dies, and it gradually slows to a stop. It stands motionless atop the tracks, draped in gloom amongst the quiet of the night. This time, he really must find others on the train. He climbs to his feet, his legs unsteady, and fumbles for the button to open the carriage door. It doesn't budge. He shoves at it with the heel of his hand, but its tight seal remains shut. His arms grow weak as fear floods his system. Suddenly, a scratch. He darts around. Silence. He feels a shuddering beneath his feet, and the grounding sound of an approaching train competes with the singular scratch. Headlights illuminate the floor of the carriage as the southbound train approaches. Another lone scratch, this time directly in front of him. He presses his back against the door, realizing he has no escape. Trapped inside, with something else... The train moves closer, its light climbing up the wall of the carriage, throwing shadows onto the walls. It passes with a roar, its colossal force tugging at the stationary carriage. In the fleeting flush of light, he catches sight of a figure at the end of the carriage. Impossibly tall, its slender body hunches in the low carriage. Wet flesh glistens in the passing light, raw and almost colorless. Crimson eyes glint in the flickering light, with a malice that he can only surmise as evil. Its mouth is closed, but the lips do not meet. Teeth as thin as pine needles protrude from blackened gums. Its gaze upon him, it shunts forward, dragging a heavy leg across the floor with a familiar scratch. He slides to the floor and screams. The final carriage of train outside thunders past and leaves him once again in darkness. Each thundering step toward him rips at the floor, the gashing underfoot barely audible over his cries. When the power is finally restored and commuters reassured, the baffled conductor seeks out his lone passenger in the upper carriage. The door jammed shut, he manages to wrench it open with the help of a few extra hands. As the metal doors part, the body of his stocky passenger tumbles backwards to his feet, a blank, blood-spattered face staring up at the young train guard. Eyes open, his face is entrenched with masses of long, slender scratches. Later, they will be described as being inflicted by some kind of animal. It takes the coroner some time to prize his stiff, lifeless fingers from the striking pocket watch in his hand. Today's episode featured two tales by Mark Nixon. Once there was a photographer and the best intentions. Both stories can be found at shadowsatthedoor.com. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Remember to share the terror. Share the show and help us grow. Also, please take a moment to rate the show in iTunes, TuneIn Radio, or whatever method you use to listen to the show. A big thanks to Jessica McHugh for two fantastic stories on our debut episode for Season 6. 
And also a big thanks to Steve Matico for the fantastic artwork. We had huge numbers of you guys that tuned in and listened to the episode. And I just want to thank you personally and on behalf of Jessica and Steve for that. And we all hope you'll be back next week for more. Starting next month, we'll be putting out a monthly newsletter featuring news, a bonus story reading exclusive to the newsletter. And every month we'll be giving away a great Wicked prize. Sign up at www.thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Mark Nixon. So today I have our featured author for today's episode, Mark Nixon, and we had two stories for Mark today, The Best Intentions and Once There Was a Photographer. So what I did want to do is is ask you to talk a little bit about each of the stories and kind of give us maybe a behind the scenes take on not necessarily the inspiration, but what went into creating them, maybe some of the challenges that you had and what you were trying to accomplish with the story. Well, I'll start with once there was a photographer. I'm really interested in, in light. It often appears in a lot of my stories. Um, I have one story that isn't out yet, but it's the character pretty much sees everything with a torchlight. So I always enjoy seeing the darkness being kind of fought back with the light. And once there was a photographer, to me, is all about that. You know, he has to rush back before the sun goes down. Right. When he's walking down the alley he he's desperate for light and when he does get some it's too much it's it's quite blinding he's blinded by the lights of the of the farmer that that saves him mm-hmm. so that's what i'm interested in with with that whilst with the, the best intentions that was actually very early in my writing stages um and i to me most of the good british ghost stories are um and normally somebody somebody's poking their nose and something they shouldn't they normally find something that's best left alone or they want a treasure that they shouldn't have. And it comes to bite them in the ass really. And that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to write my, you know, ode to the old British go Victorian kind of ghost story. And that's where the best intentions came from really. And the other thing is, is that if you've ever, I know you haven't been to Britain yet, but if you ever get to York, I challenge you to spend a night just kind of walking the streets in York and not wanting to write a ghost story about it. Cause it's just a really nice historic city. It's, it's perfect for it. Yeah. So it's the, uh, the, the walking about kind of feel where it has that old nostalgic, almost kind of like the MR James feel to it, huh? Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's something almost Jack the Rippery about walking down a cobbled street, hearing nothing but your own footsteps echoing in the streets and then just, just turning around, just making sure that echo wasn't somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love just scaring myself when I'm walking around, especially at night. When you're in a spooky situation and you're in a spooky place, I, I challenge anyone to not revert to being eight years old. My grandfather had a cabin up in the woods and I would go up there and sometimes take a week or so and go up there and write. And you have to drive a mile down the road just to get its cell phone signal. So you're really disconnected. And at two o'clock in the morning, when you get up and the dog needs to go out and he starts barking at something in the woods that isn't there. I'm eight years old again, wondering what the hell's in this forest coming out at me. You know, is it a big hairy beast? Is it Bigfoot? Is it aliens? What? You don't have a basement in that cabin in the woods, do you? No. Good. But that would be a great idea for a story. Or a hit movie in the eighties. That's right. (laughs) There's only a few of those. Yeah, the basement's always interesting. Well, that's what you're saying about um, 
reverting to a child because it's it's almost fun to do because you, you know you you know you're doing it to yourself and you know you're kind of what was that rustle in the bush and and that's fun and yeah. I mean, I'll be honest I know um with once there was a photographer it's actually almost semi autobiographical I went for a walk one night and in this village that I've lived in for a few years now but there are areas of it I've never been to I took a shortcut and got completely lost. Uh, now, I did have my phone on me, so after a while, I did start shining that in front of myself. But I, as I was walking down, I thought, hang on, I'm getting an idea. And by the time I finally came out the other end, I was like, right, story. Let's go home and write. <laughs> That's tremendous. So tell me a little bit about shadowsatthedoor.com, which is your website where uh, these two stories can be found in their written form, as well as a bunch of other stories, right? Yeah. Um, well, Shadows at the Door came about just from my desire to want to write a ghost story and a friend I kept saying to a friend of mine I had a few ideas and she just said um just go ahead and put pen to paper and see what happens and I eventually wrote it and um quite easily actually um and then she just said right people should read this now and to me I thought right what's the quickest way I can do it and at that point I wasn't even dreaming of of trying to get anything published so I thought I'd create the website which started off as a simple blog it looks right. very different as it does now and but that story got a lot more interest than I expected it to so I started writing more I kept getting more ideas and I thought you know what this would be a great place for anyone else to do this because um from what I could find most people were out there just to try and and to make some money or to to get published I just wanted to share a story Mm -hmm. and have it read have people enjoy it and and the best thing I can get from the site is for someone to get in touch and say that really scared me yeah but uh, other writers have I've gotten in touch, and you know, I even put on this and look if you would like to to appear on this website, get in touch. And very quickly, there was a few that, that got involved, and then I started meeting other writers um, on social networks. And I would, if I liked their work, I would invite them to to put a story up as well. And you know, the website actually it turns a year in um, three days, and it's absolutely amazing how how far it's come. I think it's, it's from this tiny little blog from my first ghost story to this website that I would like to think does quite well and really helps the writers that are on it. And the people that, that do appear on the site really seem to get a boost out of the traffic from the site. Yeah, it's definitely a fun website. There's And it, and like you said, even even in the, the time that I've been following it, it's gone through quite a transition. I mean, you have custom artwork up there now. You have a lot, uh, a lot of new stories up there. And you and I have done some audio work together and done readings of the stories. So you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I, and I hope that, you know, everybody that's on the site, all the other, all the other authors benefit from being a part of it, which is kind of what we try to do with Wicked Library too. I mean, that's the hardest thing when you're a new author or an independent author is trying to get your name out there and to, uh, you know, have people hear and see your work. So I think that we're, we're on the same path mission wise there. So that's why, you know, it was a lot of fun to do a couple stories by you and have you involved as a sponsor for the show this season. Yeah, and, and I'm very happy to uh, to sponsor the Wicked Library as Shadows at the Door because you're right, it's the same mission. We're both we're both trying to do the same thing. And, and the more of us that are working towards trying to get people's names out there, you know, building a reputation, I think that's a really good thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great community too. I mean, everybody in the community, in the horror community, seems to be very into helping each other out and helping promote each other's work. I haven't run across the selfish person yet where somebody's like, look at my work and 
most of the people I meet are, well, I do this, but here's somebody else's story that I really like. Yeah. And that's really good. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Mark Nixon on the Wicked Library, and you can find Mark's work at www.shadowsatthedoor.com. You can find links in the show notes. You can follow him on Twitter at Shadows at Door. Yeah, there's um, a Facebook page as well, um, which is just for yeah, just Shadows at the Door. And no, no, that's fine. <laughs> the SoundCloud stuff's on the site, so I don't think I need to. Oh, yeah, you do have the SoundCloud stuff up there. Well, we want people to hear that because that's me reading you. <laughs> the only problem is that some people will turn around and say, I didn't know you were American. I'm like, well, no, it's, it's Dan. He says it's Dan at the beginning. That's right. That's, this is Mark Nixon's work. I'm just reading it. I'm the voice in his head with an American accent. That sounds about right. Today's stories were, once there was a photographer and The Best Intentions. Copyright Mark Nixon, 2014-2015. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda. Dramatic reading by Daniel Foytek. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was Amber Collins. Production music for this episode of The Wicked Library included The Wicked Library Theme, written and performed by Anthony Rausick of Novus, A Laughing Librarian, and Wicked Ways, written and performed by Daniel Foytek. Black Rainbow by Pittix, written and performed by Pittix and shared on ccmixter.org. All other music was written and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Sound design by Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is a Hicksunt Fabulous production. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive Producer, Nelson W. Piles. The Wicked Library is a founding member of the Society 13 Podcast Network. Society 13, where badasses listen to podcasts. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 602. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.